0: Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today, growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO show. I'm your host Kevin Appleby and today I've got Ashley Vukovic with me. Ashley is one of our mentors based in the United States of America and she's a returning podcast guest. But... We've got a special reason for today's podcast, that in a a couple of weeks, Ashley is going to be joining me in the classroom in a best practice accelerator about fundraising. So we're going to talk a little bit about fundraising today. But Ashley, welcome back to the Grow CFO Show.
1: Thanks, Kevin. I had such a good time the first time. I definitely am looking forward to being back.
0: Brilliant. Ashley, fundraising. What are we talking about when we're talking fundraising? What do we actually mean by that?
1: First of all, I think it's as a company, as a small company, you have to know your cash runway. The last thing you want to do is run out of cash. Not a good thing. So you have to have a plan. And usually that plan involves some type of fundraising. So that can be, if you're very early on, it can be like a friends and family kind of pass the hat around. It can be angel investing. It can be venture capital. It can be private equity, or it can be just debt. It could be a term loan. It could be a line of credit. There's all types of Fundraising activities that you can do. So excited to dig into that a little bit with you, Kevin.
0: Actually, I guess that over the years you've been involved in all of those.
1: Yes, I have. <laughs> yeah.
0: Now tell me a little bit about which of those is right for who.
1: It probably depends on the stage of company that you are. Are you early on? Are you pre-revenue? So you've got a great idea, but you haven't even turned that into a product necessarily. So typically that is when you're passing the hat around, friends and family, that wealthy uncle that you may have uh, in time to give him a call and see if he's interested in supporting a venture, that an idea that you have. Next is angel investing. So I'm in the Midwest here in Indianapolis, Indiana, and there is a great angel network here. So it's a lot of individuals that have been successful in their careers and they're looking at not only making money and investing in profitable companies, but also just giving entrepreneurs the opportunity to bring their ideas to fruition. So there's a great network of angel investors. So finding out how do you tap into that network wherever you may be. So
0: typically, what sort of size of fundraise would you go to an angel with?
1: Yeah, so I would say around a million dollars is in total what you're looking for. So an angel might come in $100,000 or $250,000 when you're still fairly early in the company's life. I think that's typically so you want enough cash runway to get you through. I mean, 12 on the very low end, but 24, like typically 18 to 24 months. it'd be great if a round of fundraising got you there. Sometimes the earlier stages don't get you quite that far, but they get you to a milestone. And maybe that's a product release or enhancements to your product or some key hires. So so knowing what you're going to use those funds for is really important as well.
0: But I guess at that stage, you're probably still too small as a company to have a CFO or even a fractional CFO. So that's probably not the stage that as finance leaders we're going to get particularly worried about.
1: That's very true. Typically, an angel investor's looking more to have conversations with the leaders on what their ideas are and how they're going to bring that product to market. It's less about the financial side of it. Now, they may ask for financial statements. They may ask for a financial projection But they're typically not digging too far into it because at that point, it's all a guess. It's people's best guesses rather than a lot of financial data around it because it's so early on. We don't have a lot of data to back up the projections at that point.
0: Now, so in terms of the best practice accelerator the workshop that you and I are going to be running in a couple of weeks time, Ashley, we're probably not talking about the angel stage, what fundraising stage are we talking about when they say the fractional CFO or even the first permanent CFO is getting involved?
1: Yes, yeah, so typically you're look at that point you're looking at bringing in venture capital. let's say you've got revenue maybe of a million dollars or more, and you're looking to raise anywhere from a couple of million to five to ten million. There's no magical numbers it's more about your particular business and what cash you need to get out that runway that I was talking about, that 18 plus. So at that point, there are some expectations of what financial data you can provide. And so having a strategic finance leader, whether that is fractional or a full-time leader is really important because you want that finance leader to walk alongside the entrepreneur, the CEO, to be able to substantiate the ideas that they have. And sometimes your CEO, your entrepreneur can have those at a high level. They may have a business background and they understand the financial side, but they typically can't go deep into the financial side and into the data that supports the numbers that you create. So having that strategic finance professional along the way is just really key in a successful fundraise. Yeah. So Ashley,
0: as a fractional CFO yourself, you must see a fair few of that sort of fundraise.
1: Yeah, I have. I definitely have seen the venture capital fundraises and then next, like private equity. And so that's the next stage. When you're trending more towards profitability, starting to look at EBITDA and it's starting to be a positive number, and you're trying to figure out how you can grow your business organically but also maybe accelerate the growth of that business by bringing in a partner such as a private equity firm. So that's the next level of fundraising.
0: And in, that's where in, we start hearing the terms Series A, Series B, and so on.
1: Correct. Yeah, you have Seed Series. Is Sometimes even with like your angel investors, that's yep. typically your first fundraising. And then A, B, C, and it can go from there. But yeah. And then the other thing, Kevin, is just the debt side of it. So I have worked with companies that really fund all of their operations through debt, and that's a strategy that they have and they are successful with it. But more typically what I see is the fundraising through the venture capital or the private equity firms and then layering debt on top of that. Mm -hmm. So the best time to get debt, to bring debt in, is when you don't need it. So the best time to get it is right after you fundraise or in conjunction with the fundraise. And that might be in the form of a term loan. That might be in the form of a line of credit. Typically, it's a line of credit because then you don't have to draw on it unless you need it. And a lot of times that's used for inorganic growth. So you found a company that you think would be a good complement and a growth accelerator to the business that you have. And so having that debt to be able to tap into to buy a company to accelerate your growth is a great strategy to have.
0: Yeah. And I I guess debt as well can be very useful if you're an asset-rich business. A lot of debt finance requires assets to secure the debt. If it's trucks, if it's plant machinery, if it's lots of buildings, then that's the environment to really think about whether debt's the way to go.
1: Yeah. At that point, it depends on the type of company you have, the products you have and how you plan to layer that on top of additional fundraising that you may do like in the equity markets. So yeah, it it does tend to depend on the company and the products or services that they offer. But it's definitely a strategy that we look at anytime I'm doing a fundraising and helping out there. I, I do look at whether it's time to bring debt on or not. So, but it's definitely something to think about with each fundraise you do.
0: Is, you're involved in a lot of these fundraisers, is that kind of the standard fundraise or is everyone different?
1: I mean, I think there are some standard features of it, but everyone's different, if I can say it that way. So typically, one piece of advice I think we can give that we'll get more into in the workshop, but is just cultivating relationships. So the last thing you want to do is, okay, I'm running out of money in four months, I need to pull my in the old days, Rolodex out <laughs> yeah. and, and get my contact and start calling people. Like that's the last thing you want to do because you may not be successful. You may not have a successful fundraise. What you want to do is cultivate those relationships all throughout the life cycle of your business. So you might be talking to private equity firms that are only going to be interested in investing once you hit 10 million in revenue. And you're talking to them when you're at 2 million. Well, it's because... You want to keep them on the back burner warm so that when you start hitting those milestones that they become interested, you already have that relationship. They already know your business. They know you as a leader. So cultivating and having those relationships in your back pocket is really important. So that's a standard part of fundraising. And then the actual process, typically it's starting those conversations. It's seeing who's interested. It's getting a term sheet and hopefully getting multiple term sheets so that you have choices It's going through due diligence, which I'm sure we'll talk in length about that and how you need to be prepared for that. And then once you get a successful due diligence round done, then it's creating documents and reviewing documents and agreeing to all the terms. And then it's closing and getting the cash in the door and taking a breather and enjoying the success of raising money. And then very soon after that, putting that money to use to work.
0: Tell me about one or two that you've been involved in, Ashley. Is there anything that particularly stands out in your mind that says, oh, that was a great fundraise or, oh, learned a lot on that one that we'd do different if we did it again?
1: Yeah. So I would say two come to mind. One, venture capital. And just, I would say, and this was like in a tough market. So this was right after COVID. And well, it was a couple of years after the start of it. So it was in twenty twenty one, late 2021, early 2022. So it wasn't a great time to raise capital. It was a time where companies, investors were really, they had stopped focusing on top line growth as being the number one thing that they're looking for. And they started focusing on cash generation, break even, EBITDA. So it really became more about gross margins and bottom lines and cash runway and not about just grow for the sake of growing at all costs. So a lot of companies were starting to try to pivot then and really hit those metrics that investors were looking at. So it was a really tough time to raise money. And so having existing investors re-up was very important at that time. So what I mean by that is, investors that have already invested in the company once you always want them coming back in additional when you're doing additional raises so maybe they were in the series c round and when you go to do a series a round you want those existing investors reinvesting because one it's an easy okay check the box I'm trying to raise 4 million and I've already got a million from my existing investors so it gives you confidence that you've got some money in the pipeline but it also shows to new investors that those existing investors are happy with the progress of the business. So I think for that particular capital raise in a really trying market, having our existing investors re-up and reinvest in the company was the key to success there because then we could get some outside money to come in and invest based on what we already had signed up. So that's certainly one. Another one is, was a private equity firm fundraising that I did or that I helped a company out with. And private equity raises are a whole new ballgame. You know, you may have done three or four raises with venture capital firms, but just know that it's a whole different ballgame with private equity funds. Okay. The amount- Wh- why? <laughs> well, <laughs> typically they're investing more money. so. Yeah. The level of due diligence that they're going to do is a lot more. They might do a quality of earnings if you're a company that doesn't have an audit or even if you're a company that has an audit. And so that just brings a whole nother level of scrutiny to the data. So it's just key to have good data. Like I can't stress that enough, even to the point of going through like a mini audit or a practice due diligence run. Okay. And that's where it's helpful to bring in. If you don't have a, you might have a VP of finance, but if they haven't been through a fundraise before, bringing in some strategic finance help is just key because we can come in and take a look at your data and help you understand where you have gaps, help you understand what types of questions that you're going to be getting. So you can prepare I've been in meetings where we didn't even know the outcome of the data and private equity firm took the data and ran a bunch of analysis on it. And it came back and they're asking questions that, frankly, if the company had prepared and had the data and, and analyzed the data themselves, they would have been ready to answer those questions and seemed much more prepared But when the firms take the data and run it and come back and ask questions that you can't answer, that's not a situation you want to get yourself into. So being prepared, I think, is the key with private equity firm fundraising.
0: Yeah. And I guess that's where somebody like you comes in, where you've been involved in quite a few of these, is that the questions to ask in advance.
1: Yeah, the questions and the data. So in fact, I came in to help one company after an unsuccessful fundraise where really the data just wasn't in the kind of shape that the private equity firm wanted to see. And so I came in and helped them sit down and get their data in order. Really, we went through almost every contract and pulled out the key pieces, really got the CRM populated with the data and that was accurate. And we had the contracts to back it up. So really did a refresh for that company. And then walked with them through a private equity raise after we got that data in order that just, not that it wasn't hard and not that it wasn't intense, but it was successful. And at the end of the day, that's what you're trying to get is to that closing with a successful fundraise.
0: Yeah. So due diligence is clearly a key part of this. What typical things go wrong in a due diligence?
1: I think it's surprises, like you never want surprises. And if you get asked a question of what impact did COVID have on your business, let's talk about that. And you really don't have a good answer for it, or you don't have the data to support the answer. I think that's the things that you just have to know your data and you have to know the story and be able to tell the story and make sure the data doesn't discredit the story that you're telling. So that's key, not only having the financial story to back up it, that story, but also then the data to support it as well is, I think, just key.
0: This reminds me of days years and years ago when I was involved in the chemical industry. And none of it was external with fundraisers, but the plant that I was involved with, we were going through something called a set strategy, where the technology we'd been using for the process was outdated. We had to refresh the tech. So it was going to be multi-million pound investment in new chemical plants. We were going to head office for the money. And I think going into that, we had a slide or two for just about every question we could possibly think of main board throwing at us during the process.
1: And you didn't think of all of them?
0: Oh, no, we did not think of all of them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing about it. There's always something that'll come up that you had not thought of. And that's okay. Okay. Like it's okay to, you get on these due diligence calls and typically in the private equity world, you're gonna have a due diligence call for each department or each area within the business. So you'll have one on go-to-market where you've got your sales and your marketing professionals and they're talking about the go-to-market strategy and you need to have the pipeline reports to back it up and they wanna know what's your success rate from the time a lead comes in until you close it. So it's the story, but even in sales and marketing, it's all about the data too. And then you'll have one on development. What's your development plan? How are you bringing feedback in from your customers and integrating that into your plans for your product? And then you can have like services, inventory, like depending on what type of company you have. And then you have the backend, you have the GNA section and that's really the catch-all for everything else. But really, I think people, processes and systems Those are the things to think about when you're preparing for due diligence. Do you have people, do you have leaders in place that can have these conversations? Do you have processes actually documented, especially on the financial side that you can hand over? And do you actually follow those processes? And then systems. What systems do you have in place? Is it an Excel spreadsheet or a Google sheet or is it an actual system that houses your data? So that's all important as you walk through these due diligence processes. Yeah. Do you
0: start seeing now AI being something that's questioned in that due diligence process? Because that's potentially going to turn everything on its head in the next two or three years. We might have systems to do things at the moment, but we might need very different systems to be competitive three years down the road.
1: Yeah, certainly it's a hot topic. And it's something all of the companies I work with are talking about. Not a lot of them have implemented a lot yet. I mean, people are using it in the marketing world. They're using AI to help assist write things for them. We see it in HR, whether that's writing policies or even in the recruiting side. So we're starting to see conversations around it and some of our more cutting edge clients are starting to even implement some things, but it hasn't really been in my experience yet part of the due diligence process. But I think it's just, I mean, we're on the edge of that. We're actually, and I think security is probably one of the biggest things around that in a due diligence process. That's where a lot of the questions would be centered, I think is how are you securing your data? If you're using AI to run your financial models? Like, how are you ensuring that your data is secure when you're doing that? But I do think it's throwing the AI conversation. Every company should be looking at how AI is going to change their business. And so being able, especially as the entrepreneur, the CEO, being able to talk about how you're going to bring AI into your business is key because it's not going away and it is going to help. To change how we work and how we do things. And so everybody needs to be thinking about it. Everybody needs to be able to speak intelligently about it. And that is a big part of fundraising these days.
0: Yeah. So we talk about various members of the business on the way through that conversation. We talk about the CEO and how financially literate the CEO might be. We talked about various stages of the process that might be involving the the sales and marketing and HR people. Is it right to think that the CFO is probably the glue that's holding everything together as you go through this?
1: I think that's a really good way to phrase it, because somebody has to lead the process internally and be the liaison to whoever's doing the due diligence, whether that's the venture capital firm, the private equity firm, or an outside firm that's coming in. and running the process for them. And so they don't want to deal with 100 different people within the company. They do want one contact. And so making sure that they have that one contact and that we're making sure everything's getting done. We're on phone calls. We're on Zoom calls where they're walking through diligence with the development team. But who's going to make sure that all of the questions they asked that weren't answered or all the data requests they made are actually getting done and there's follow-up happening. And so a lot of times you have the CFO or if there's a COO, they can help out a lot too in the process, but you do need somebody that's driving all the follow-up and all data requests. And a lot of times that is the CFO. And so I love that we're the glue that holds it all together. I think that's a really good Depiction of what our role is.
0: Yeah, because it certainly doesn't sound like the CEO's job because there's an awful lot of attention going to be paid to detail here. And most CEOs, in my experience, are taking much more than 10,000 feet view.
1: Yeah, I think that's really true, Kevin. And the other thing is, you don't want to put the business on pause. There typically is sometimes a little blip in results when you go through a big fundraising process because there is so much attention. Sucked into that process, but you want to try to minimize that as much as possible. And so, having the CEO only in the conversations he or she needs to be in is important. And keeping them out when they don't need to be there, I think, is also important because they need to still be driving the business and driving the growth of the business. And the last thing you want to do this is a multi month process. And the first thing that the investor is going to ask is for your financial model. And so they're going to get what the expectations are for the next couple of months. And so if you have to come in and, and they're going to ask for that performance along the way. And so they're going to compare it and say, well, you missed your projections for August. Why is that? And so you're going to have to explain why that is. And you don't want it to be Well, I'm so focused on this fundraising process that basically the business has gone on hold. That's not what anybody wants to hear. So being able to have a professional like the CFO run this process and keep the CEO's time as free as possible to keep running the business is really important.
0: So, Ashley, I'm getting really excited about the workshops that we're going to be running later this month. They're coming up. The actual title of the Best Practice Accelerator is Prepare for a Fundraising Process. So you can appreciate in the sort of things that we've covered today, that preparation for the process is not something that you take lightly. There's a lot to think about. So, Ashley, I think that's going to be a really great workshop that we're going to run together as the start of the March best practice accelerator
1: yeah i'm really excited kevin i think as we saw today like you could talk about this stuff forever so i think our biggest challenge with that session will be just getting everything in that we want to in the amount of time we have so there won't be a shortage of topics and conversations and questions i'm I'm quite sure
0: where today we've just been talking at high level and i've been asking ashley about some of her experiences we're going to delve deeper in the best practice accelerator and we're going to give lots of opportunity for q a and there are going to be some practical exercises that you can do over the course of the accelerator to really help getting you ready for that fundraise okay ashley thank you for being this week's guest on the grow cfo show thanks kevin